Chapter Two of The White Feather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The White Feather, by P. G. Wodehouse, Chapter Two: Sheen at Home. On the afternoon following the Oxford A match, Sheen of Seymour's was sitting over the gas stove in his study with a Thucydides. He had been staying in that day with a cold. He was always staying in. Everyone has his hobby. That was Sheen's. Nobody at Riken, even at Seymour's, seemed to know Sheen very well, with the exception of Drummond, and those who troubled to think about the matter at all rather wondered what Drummond saw in him. To the superficial observer the two had nothing in common. Drummond was good at games. He was in the first fifteen and the second eleven and had won the featherweights at Aldershot, and seemed to have no interests outside them. Sheen, on the other hand, played fives for the house, and that was all. He was bad at cricket, and had given up football by special arrangement with Allardyce, on the plea that he wanted all his time for work. He was in for an in-school scholarship, the Gotford. Allardyce, though professing small sympathy with such a degraded ambition, had given him a special dispensation, and since then Sheen had retired from public life even more than he had done hitherto. The examination for the Gotford was to come off towards the end of the term. The only other Rykinians with whom Sheen was known to be friendly were Stanning and Attle of Applebee's. And here those who troubled to think about it wondered still more, for Sheen, whatever his other demerits, was not of the type of Stanning and Attle. There are certain members of every public school, just as there are certain members of every college at the universities, who are marked men. They have never been detected in any glaring breach of the rules, and their manner towards the powers that be is, as a rule, suave, even deferential. Yet it is one of the things which everybody knows, that they are in the black books of the authorities, and that sooner or later, in the picturesque phrase of the New Yorker, they will get it in the neck. To this class Stanning and Adel belonged. It was plain to all that the former was the leading member of the firm. A glance at the latter was enough to show that, whatever ambitions he may have had in the direction of villainy, he had not the brains necessary for really satisfactory evil-doing. As for Stanning, he pursued an even course of life, always rigidly obeying the eleventh commandment, Thou shalt not be found out. This kept him from collisions with the authorities, while a ready tongue and an excellent knowledge of the art of boxing—he was, after Drummond, the best lightweight in the place—secured him at least tolerance at the hand of the school, and as a matter of fact, though most of those who knew him disliked him, and particularly those who, like Drummond, were what Clowes had called the old brigade, he had nevertheless a tolerably large following. A first fifteen man, even in a bad year, can generally find boys anxious to be seen about with him. That Sheen should have been amongst these surprised one or two people, notably Mr. Seymour, who being game's master had come a good deal into contact with Stanning, and had not been favourably impressed. The fact was that the keynote of Sheen's character was a fear of giving offence. Within limits this is not a reprehensible trait in a person's character, but Sheen overdid it, and it frequently complicated his affairs. 
there come times when one has to choose which of two people one shall offend. By acting in one way, we offend A. By acting in the opposite way, we annoy B. Sheen had found himself faced by this problem when he began to be friendly with Drummond. Their acquaintance, begun over a game of fives, had progressed. Sheen admired Drummond as the type of what he would have liked to have been if he could have managed it. And Drummond felt interested in Sheen because nobody knew much about him. He was, in a way, mysterious. Also, he played the piano really well, and Drummond at that time would have courted anybody who could play for his benefit mumbling Mose, and didn't mind obliging with unlimited encores. So the two struck up an alliance, and as Drummond hated Stanning only a shade less than Stanning hated him, Sheen was under the painful necessity of choosing between them. He chose Drummond, whereby he undoubtedly did wisely. Sheen sat with his Thucydides over the gas-stove, and tried to interest himself in the doings of the Athenian expedition at Syracuse. His brain felt heavy and flabby. He realized dimly that this was because he took too little exercise, and he made a resolution to diminish his hours of work per diem by one, and to devote that one to fives. He would mention it to Drummond when he came in. He would probably come in to tea. The board was spread in anticipation of a visit from him. Herbert, the boot-boy, had been dispatched to the town earlier in the afternoon, and had returned with certain foodstuffs which were now stacked in an appetizing heap on the table. Sheen was just making something more or less like sense out of an involved passage of Nikias's speech, in which that eminent general himself seemed to have only a hazy idea of what he was talking about, when the door opened. He looked up, expecting to see Drummond, but it was standing. He felt instantly that warm shooting sensation from which David Copperfield suffered in moments of embarrassment. Since the advent of Drummond he had avoided Stanning, and he could not see him without feeling uncomfortable. As they were both in the sixth form, and sat within a couple of yards of one another every day, it will be realized that he was frequently uncomfortable. "'Great Scott!' said Stanning. "'Swatting!' Sheen glanced almost guiltily at his Thucydides. Still, it was something of a relief that the other had not opened the conversation with an indictment of Drummond. "'You see,' he said apologetically, "'I'm in for the Gutford.' "'So am I. What's the good of swatting, though? I'm not going to do a stroke.' As Stanning was the only one of his rivals of whom he had any real fear, Sheen might have replied with justice that— if that was the case, the more he swatted, the better. But he said nothing. He looked at the stove, and dogs-eared the Thucydides. "'What a worm you are, always staying in!' said Stanning. "'I caught a cold watching the match yesterday.' "'You're as flabby as—' Stanning looked round for a simile. "'As a doughnut! Why don't you take some exercise?' I'm going to play fives, I think. I do need some exercise. Fives? Why don't you play footer? I haven't time. I want to work. What rot! I'm not doing a stroke. Stanning seemed to derive a spiritual pride from this admission. Tell you what, then, said Stanning. I'll play you tomorrow after school. 
Sheen looked a shade more uncomfortable, but he made an effort, and declined the invitation. "'I shall probably be playing Drummond,' he said. "'Oh, all right,' said Stanning. "'I don't care. Play whom you like.' There was a pause. "'As a matter of fact,' resumed Stanning, "'what I came here for was to tell you about last night. I got out and went to Mitchell's. Why didn't you come? Didn't you get my note? I sent a kid with it.' Mitchell was a young gentleman of rich but honest parents, who had left the school at Christmas. He was in his father's office, and lived in his father's house on the outskirts of the town. From time to time his father went up to London on matters connected with business, leaving him alone in the house. On these occasions Mitchell the Younger would write to Stanning, with whom when at school he had been on friendly terms, and Stanning, breaking out of his house, after everybody had gone to bed, would make his way to the Mitchell residence, and spend a pleasant hour or so there. Mitchell Sr. owned Turkish cigarettes and a billiard-table. Stanning appreciated both. There was also a piano, and Stanning had brought Sheen with him one night to play it. The getting out and the subsequent getting in had nearly whitened Sheen's hair, and it was only by a series of miracles that he had escaped detection. Once, he felt, was more than enough, and when a fag from Appleby's had brought him Stanning's note, containing an invitation to a second jaunt of the kind, he had refused to be lured into the business again. "'Yes, I got the note.' he said. "'Then why didn't you come? Mitchell was asking where you were.' "'It's so beastly risky.' <laughs> "'Risky? Rot!' "'We should get sacked if we were caught.' "'Well, don't get caught, then.' Sheen registered an internal vow that he would not. "'He wanted us to go again on Monday. Will you come?' "'I don't think I will, Stanning.' said Sheen. It isn't worth it. You mean you funk it. That's what's the matter with you. Yes, I do, admitted Sheen. As a rule, in stories, the person who owns that he is afraid gets unlimited applause and adulation, and feels a glow of conscious merit. But with Sheen it was otherwise. The admission made him, if possible, more uncomfortable than he had been before. "'Mitchell will be sick,' said Stanning. Sheen said nothing. Stanning changed the subject. "'Well, at any rate,' he said, "'give us some tea. You seem to have been victualling for a siege.' "'I'm awfully sorry,' said Sheen, turning a deeper shade of red and experiencing a redoubled attack of the warm shooting. "'But the fact is, I'm waiting for Drummond.' Stanning got up, and expressed his candid opinion of Drummond in a few words. He said more. He described Sheen, too, in unflattering terms. "'Look here,' he said. "'You may think it jolly fine to drop me just because you've got to know Drummond a bit, but you'll be sick enough that you've done it before you've finished.' "'It isn't that,' began Sheen. "'I don't care what it is.' You slink about trying to avoid me all day, and you won't do a thing I ask you to do. But, you see— Oh, shut up! said Stanning. End of chapter 2